Trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. To the trauma code on uh, WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio um, for November 13th. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot going on on the world right now. And I think um, you know, on WBAI, we have the the pride of being the home of Amy Goodman and Democracy Now. And their episode this morning was really excellent um, on covering. Uh, the tremendous escalation of violence in Gaza in particular. And I do want to um, touch on that uh, a little bit later in today's show, um, but just uh, to give the update for people who can't stick around, you know, over 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza, probably close to 5,000 children. Um, but, you know, we don't know anymore because the escalation and isolation of civilian infrastructure, particularly Healthcare, healthcare workers, hospitals, uh, the Department of Health is such that there is no data for the last 48 hours. Um, and I'm going to get into this later on in the show, but we know, for example, um, and this was covered on Democracy Now!, Dr. Hamam Allah, who uh, reportedly the only nephrologist in Gaza, right, that what's necessary to, to really be able to dialyze people with renal failure and other essential care uh, for a country, for a health system. Um, he had been interviewed last week on Democracy Now! And he said, quote, we are being exterminated. And over the weekend, he and his family were all killed. Um, 
So I think to me that really represents the acuity of the situation right now um, that uh, really has elevated to the level uh, that justifies the term of genocide and all of the moral, ethical, legal obligations that fall upon us once we realize that. Um, and I do want to get into that uh, later on in the show, as I mentioned. But uh, for today, I also I had um, organized uh, a guest who I'm really proud to have on the show, an excellent pediatric surgeon, Dr. Edward Barksdale, um, who has done a lot of work really changing how uh, particularly pediatric trauma surgeons, pediatric surgeons deal with um, children who have been shot, injured by uh, deadly violence, and what that recovery looks like and how to prevent it, which is, uh, even though seems a world away, is very relevant to all the topics that I talked about in the beginning of the show. So why don't we have a musical break? We'll get Dr. Barksdale on the line, and we're going to talk uh, with him about preventing and treating uh, deadly violence among children. Welcome back to The Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio here in Brooklyn, New York for November 13th. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy, very proud to, to have on the show. People who've been listening know that uh, I'm a trauma surgeon and we focus on this show on issues of trauma and healing uh, for the community, individuals, uh, and uh, in, in, in more ways than just the physical, um, but uh, also... Um, you know, psychologic, uh, cultural, all of those things. And for those reasons, I'm really proud to have on the line a leader in the field, uh, a talented and accomplished pediatric surgeon, Dr. Edward Barksdale. Uh, Dr. Barksdale, on, are you on the line? Can you hear us? I can hear you well. Excellent. If you're able to speak up or any closer to the microphone, uh, make sure that we, everyone in the audience can hear you well. Um, so first of all, thank you for joining us on the air today. Absolutely delighted to join you. And uh, I know this is professional, so but you can call me Ed. That's oh. how I think of myself, or Dr. Ed is, is fine. But, yeah, and, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, feel free, I'll extend the same courtesy. You can call me Simon, not a problem. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Barksdale, uh, is, uh, Edward, is someone that um, is not only uh, a um, talented surgeon, the division chief of pediatric um, surgery, 
vice chair of the Department of Pediatric Surgery at University Hospitals Rainbow Babies and Children Hospital in Cleveland, right, doctor? Um, That's exactly right, and I'm professor of surgery at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. Right. So, um, so I, I'm very appreciative of your time. I know you have a, a lot to do, and, and you've written a lot about uh, the work that you do. Um, but before we get there, um, I do just want to uh, get to know you uh, a little bit, put all of your work in context. Um, and I always think a fundamental sort of social unit is, you know, where you went to high school. So, uh, Dr. Barksdale, Edward, where did you grow up and where did you go to high school? So I grew up in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia. And I graduated high school from a place called E.C. Glass High School, public high school in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, a little bit about me from that context is that I graduated in 1976 and in 1962, my parents and another set of parents integrated the school system in Lynchburg, uh, the first or the first case in Lynchburg, but only the second case in the state of Virginia. So uh, I'm a southern boy, uh, deep to the core, but educated in New England. Well, that that's quite a, a legacy of of work in education and, and civil rights, and maybe that'll help inform. Um, but so our audience gets a sense, how did you get to, to where you are today as an accomplished pediatric surgeon? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I got here on my knees, <clears throat> a combination of, of ways on my knees. I got here on my knees by prayer, and I got here on my knees by service to values of social justice. From an education standpoint, I left. Uh, neither of my parents went to, uh, went to college. My mother never graduated high school. I went to Yale College, uh, then after Yale College, I went to Harvard Medical School. I trained uh, at the Mass General Hospital in Boston, and then after that, I did my pediatric surgery training in Cincinnati, at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and uh, became a pediatric surgeon, and was in Pittsburgh as a tenured professor of surgery for 13 years, and I wanted to move from what I thought was academic success in 2007 to social significance that brought me to Cleveland. Wow. And, you know, people who uh, work in academic surgery, pediatric surgery, may know you for sort of, and correct me if I have a, a misunderstanding of history, but sort of the first, um, uh, what do you call it in a play, the, the first uh, uh, act, I guess, of your professional career was in treating surgically relatively rare but devastating disease like short bowel syndrome and neuroblastoma. You know, exactly. how did you get from that work into what you're doing now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mostly largely working with uh, children survivors of uh, deadly violence? So essentially in, in 2007, 2006, 2007, I had an epiphany or an, a, a spiritual experience. As many people in academic medicine, I was looking to be a chief of a division of surgery or a department of surgery, and I came to Cleveland, uh, and I was offered the job to be the division chief of pediatric surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, I didn't quite like the clinic for my personal aspirations, and when I was leaving, the neighborhood outside the Cleveland Clinic had many young boys that looked like me 40 to 50 years before with their, with their pants sagging and with hag, uh, handing bags to each other. And uh, I said, I'm never going to come to this place. And I went with a friend to Nicaragua, and it, while in Nicaragua, I had an experience that showed me that if I could do good in, in Nicaragua, I could do well in Cleveland, and that I actually needed to come to Cleveland to help fight this despair problem. It wasn't violence then, but what I saw was poverty and despair, and that's what brought me to Cleveland. I, I am the sixth trained African-American pediatric surgeon in the country. And when I finished my training, there were 643 other total pediatric surgeons. I was number six or number seven uh, when I was board certified. And I realized that there was an obligation beyond the laboratory and the academic arena. There was an obligation to the community to, to bring my talents in service. And so that's why I say that, you know, how did I get here? I got here on my knees, if you will, by praying and working hard, and also got here on my knees by the humility of serving the community with whatever talents I was given. Oh. Um, and and I know from some of your uh, talks that I've that I've seen, you talk about 
um, at least for yourself, sort of envisioning a new paradigm of academic surgeon and surgery. You know, you had been aspiring to lead an academic surgery department. So can you tell us a little bit more, what does that new paradigm look like and how is it different from the old paradigm? Yep. So the old paradigm was a paradigm that, that believed that the true academic surgeon was defined by how well he or she operated, uh, how big their laboratory was, and how funded it was by the NIH, and how many publications they had. And so it was very much confined to the realm of the hospital. But I think that the ultimate in academic surgery is, is its impact on humanity, and that can occur by creating a cancer vaccine, which I was working on, or it can be in re-envisioning how we can create a vaccine against trauma, mm. against despair, against gun violence, against a number of things. And so I think we, as academicians and as clinicians, are called to be innovators to think about how we can improve the human condition. So, in fact, I go to Indiana, Indianapolis to talk about this new paradigm of approaching ourselves as people who can have scientific and social impact if not both simultaneously. And um, part of these talks, and maybe this is how your, you know, your first epiphany related to despair and your work now on gun violence, um, is you've talked, uh, and, and it's been talked about a lot, but is, is worth uh, focusing on how structural violence um, you know, plays into um, and creates the conditions for deadly gun violence, particularly for children and adolescents. Um, do you want to, and you know, particularly right now where we know that um, gun violence is the number one cause of mortality of death in children and adolescents in the United States? So I, I think we talk a lot about structural violence, but I'm not sure that everyone understands what it really means. And so maybe I can just, without being professorial, <laughs> if I just kind of lay it down a little bit, um, you know, the, the best description of the baseline of structural violence for me happened when Robert Kennedy spoke in Cleveland the day after Martin Luther King was shot. And, and he talked about there being another kind of violence, one that was much slower but just as deadly as a gunshot. And that was really the, the violence that existed in institutions and the indifference of society to decay. And so when we think about violence, we think of, most of us think about direct violence, someone shooting someone, hitting someone, or stabbing someone. But structural violence are those things that are deeply embedded in our society that prevent people from having access to their full agency. It's the isms, racism, sexism, genderism, um, uh, ableism, um, and sexual preferences. And so that as we allow those things to exist and grow, they cause injury to people who can, cannot achieve what they want to achieve. And so I think the responsibility for trauma surgeons like you and I, uh, for physicians like you and I, for political leaders, is to identify those structural forces and to work to uh, mitigate them, if not destroy them. Wow, and it's it's interesting to me you brought up um, RFK responding to um, Martin Luther King's death, and uh, I don't know if it's the same speech you're referring to, but um, and it's probably available freely now. But I know that uh, RFK was giving a speech, and he um, told his audience, informed them about the death of Martin Luther King, and there's an audible gasp and like a, a change in in the um, atmosphere when he says it, because he's really bringing the news to people before social media. And that, to me, has always captured the history of a moment um, that, obviously, I'm too young to have been present for. So um, yes. interesting that you bring it back to that. Um, yes, <laughs> you are too young to be present for it. <laughs> I was a 10-year-old boy uh, during that time. And it's those events that have been impactful, and particularly for me, which I left out in early part of the conversation is that when I was a four-year-old boy, after my parents had integrated the school system in Lynchburg, Virginia, two ministers came to my house. One I knew, one I didn't know. The one I didn't know was a shorter man who talked with his hand and had a bit of a vibrato and called my sister, my mother's sister with the vibrato. 
Well, to make a long story short, you know, my mother was all excited about this guy coming, but this man had no halo or wings. Several years later, I realized that this man who came to our very small house in Lynchburg, Virginia, was uh, no royalty, as my mother treated him, but he was a king. He was Martin Luther King. Wow. And so six years after this, when Dr. King was shot and killed, I became really hyper-aware of the need for me to begin a personal commitment to understand those things in our society that I might be able to impact, not at a grandiose level as Dr. King did, but I realized if he had no halo or wings and could make a difference, then maybe this little boy might someday be able to do something without halo and wings that would have an impact in the world. Wow. Um, I'm learning a lot of history uh, talking with you, but tell us a little bit about your work, um, you know, clinically with um, children injured by gun violence, deadly violence, um, in, uh, you know, helping them heal. You know, what what is uh, some of the work that you're doing? What does that look like? Yeah. So the program that we have now is known as the Anti-Fragility Initiative. And this concept of anti-fragility uh, emerges from a term that an NYU professor, Nassim Tlaib, coined about the turn of the century, 2000. And it embraced the concept that those companies that go through chaos and become broken and become reordered again are more strong and more stable than those companies that don't. That's anti-fragility. And that is in contrast with the term robustness, which means that something can't break, or resilience, which means that something comes back to the way it was after it's been bent. But when you think about trauma, when you think about the work that you do, when a child or young person or older person is shot or potentially paralyzed after an injury, they can't back, bounce back to the way they were before. So I began to feel it's a false narrative for us to make people resilient, particularly those people coming from underserved, under-resourced communities, struggling with other disadvantages. But we can potentially make them stronger in those broken places. And that Hemingway quote from Farewell to Arms was one of my grandmother's favorite quotes, that the world breaks everyone, and afterwards many are stronger in the broken places. And so we wanted to develop a program that would help restore strength meaning, purpose for children and young adults who've been injured. So what, um, can you tell us what the, that work yeah. looks like? Yeah, so what that work looked like is I'd had some previous work going into crack houses, street corners, meeting with gang leaders, gang bangers, and I realized that our old model of health care was almost colonial in nature. And what I mean by that is that health care happens in the hospital, health occurs in the community. So what we do tangibly is we meet gunshot wound victims in the emergency room shortly after they're injured, once they're stabilized. And we call that time a teachable moment in which the toughest of young boys and girls are now looking for their mother, and they're open to new possibilities because they're scared. And so we hope to leverage that moment. Once they are better, we are on the phone with them in 48 hours and in their home within a month to begin our process of services in order to connect with them. And when I say we, it means the social workers who work with our group. And, and what, what they do is they work to get a sense of understanding who they are, who these children and young people are, and to try to promote a new view of who they are. And so when you think about it, once they're stable and we're in their home, uh, we provide medical services and get them connected to clinics. We provide mental health and other counseling. We focus on their schoolwork if they're going back to school. But the two important pieces that I love of our program is we help them find a sense of their identity, like who they are, and a sense of their spirituality, who they want to be. And we do that by trying to build a supportive community around them. We do this for a year, and uh, 
and it's grant-funded through Victims of Crime Act, and we've had tremendous success. Do you have any data to, to um, yep. show what the effect of that is on, on your patients and their communities? Sure. So the data that we like most to look at is data rela- related to re-victimization and re-injury. We started this program. Uh, there's a podcast known as Serial, and we took care of uh, there's a, a very famous segment of that podcast in which there's a six-month-old child who was shot and killed, and we took care of her in, here in Cleveland. And we looked at our data, and we saw that 30%, 30% of children ages 6 to 16 who came to Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in a two-year period shot would be back again within a year with another gunshot wound, 30%. That's just children. That was unconscionable for us. And when we did a deep dive evaluation, uh, looking at a very large database of about 22,000 people um, and the subset of injured children over a five-year period of time, we found that there were certain reasons that this might occur, and we began to address these. What our data show now since we began the uh, Anti-Fragility Initiative, we've seen just under 500 patients. Uh, We've taken care of 2,700 family members, and we have seen less than 10, that is one zero children who have been re-injured with gun violence who have been a part of our program. And so uh, that's, uh, we we are less than 10%, we're around 10% re-injury rate as opposed to 30%. And then the narrative that we've we've had of how people's lives have changed, people have graduated high school when they weren't going to graduate, they're taking jobs, they're going to college. Those are the qualitative things that help us feel that we're making a difference in society, but we have a long way to go. And if you're just joining us on the Trauma Code, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald uh, on WBEI with Dr. Edward Barksdale uh, from uh, the uh, Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, talking about their work, their anti-fragility initiative uh, to, uh, you know, treat um, childhood victims of deadly violence and prevent them from uh, coming back injured um, in the future and the success of that. So, uh, Edward, how how common is the type of work that you're doing? Do most pediatric trauma centers that deal with a lot of children uh, who are injured by deadly violence have a similar program, or is this unique? Uh, This is fairly unique. What is emerging with great frequency is this type of program in adults. Mm. Um, There may be a 100 around the country, but we are the fourth program, and there are the emergence, fourth pediatric program. I think there are about four or five that are in the works. I do believe that this concept, hospital-based violence intervention program, HVIP, is different in adults versus children. Our program is longitudinal, holistic, and person-centered. And what that means is that we follow the child over the course of the year. We look at the child beyond being the individual. We look at everything around them, the family, the school, the environment, and then we're person-centered. So we're not one-size-fits-all. We are customized based on getting to understand the child, their identity, and their sense of purpose or meaning, or as we call that, spirituality. Wow. And we do some fun stuff. So, I mean, that's how, so we have the oldest black theater in the country. Uh, we hook up those kids who, who want to do acting or theater. If they want to do rapping, we have someone who does rapping class. If they want to do art, if they want to do sports, if they want to work on their school schoolwork, we have tutoring programs. We also provide for their families. The average family that we deal with is about six individuals. We provide winter coats. We provide on the weekend meals for up to 50 families. And we have an exciting thing that we do before Thanksgiving for those children who have parents who are reentering from correctional facilities. We give a uh, Thanksgiving dinner at a very nice restaurant to kind of help cement that family bond. Wow. 
Um, anything else about uh, you know the work you're doing, the program that you're describing that you want to uh, make sure that uh, we talk about with our audience? Yes, you know I, I think it's so important for the audience to know that that this should not be a unique Cleveland type program. I feel that uh, this is something that should be done in every community, and that it should be customized to the community. Each community has its different needs and that the program uh, should be, as I said, customized. But the premises of the program is that we move from hurt to heal to hope to whole. And it gets back to that concept of, of once children are injured or anyone's injured, that they're fractured and fragmented. But I believe strongly in the Japanese art form of kintsugi, and Kintsugi, as you well know, is that the broken pot that seems worthless, that's put back together with liquid gold, is more beautiful and more value than it, valuable than it was before it was broken. And so, again, I think that this is an opportunity for us as communities and as societies to recognize that violent trauma is not inevitable, cannot be treated, that we have to lean in. And if we don't lean in, um, we will suffer the consequences as a society of violence going out of control. Wow. So uh, I am hopeful, and, and I think that I appreciate you uh, elevating this for your community and for the community of listeners to you, and I hope others will lean in and create their own programs. Excellent. Um, and, you know, I brought you on, and we've been talking about doing this for months, to talk about your work, uh, particularly in Cleveland with traumatically injured children. But you've become something of an expert on uh, healing from childhood trauma, uh, uh, literally. Um, and, you know, before you came on the air, we were talking about news from the Holy Land, really extraordinary levels of violence, um, particularly um you know, causing traumatic injury among children. The last numbers I saw were probably close to 5,000 children um, and adolescents killed uh, and at least double that um, injured. And we've spoken to healthcare workers there um, and, and heard from them about a lot of traumatic amputations, a lot of burn injuries uh, among children. There's been a lot of casualties amongst the healthcare workers as well. Um, and one thing that's come out uh, and I don't want to bum rush you. This isn't your area of expertise in, in some ways, but I, I have heard that there's a, um, a new uh, phrase that's come out of Gaza during this time, which is WCNSF. I don't know if you've heard this, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. As an expert, as someone with a lot of experience, at least working with childhood survivors of deadly violence, do you have anything that, that you want to say or are comfortable saying at this time about uh, what's going on in Gaza? So um, I have learned uh, that there is no comment about Israel and Gaza that will not go unpunished. And so I don't want my words to be construed in any way uh, because I've found that just talking about Israel and Gaza means I'm not talking about the Ukraine or Azerbaijan or Congo. But the point is, is that, uh, as you know, that, you know, the first responsibility of any society is to put the well welfare of its children at its greatest position. And that as we watch the horrific things in the news, children who are not in that setting are being traumatized. And so as, I, as a trauma surgeon, I thought trauma meant that I was taking care of physical injury. But I realized that trauma uh, occurs greatest in the depths of the psyche, even when we're not physically injured, and that we watch injury. And as you, I'm sure, believe as well, that when we watch trauma, we become hurt, and the quote is just that, that hurt people hurt people. And so I'm concerned about what our children are witnessing on TV. I'm very concerned about what's happening uh, across the world uh, related to children being injured. And I think that we need to begin 
people, hurt people, then we must lean as a, and as a country of healed people to heal the people who are hurt. And I think that comes with reestablishing a sense of hope and a sense of a positive future in every place that's struggling with that type of, of issue. Wow. Um, and uh, whenever I have a, a guest on the show, you know, I, I like to ask about a cultural recommendation. Um, but before I get to that, is there anything else that you want to say? Um, you know, why we still have the opportunity while you have the uh, you have you on the air with New York City? Yeah. No. I, I just uh, I, I I want to say thank you for having me on. You know, I love your city. I had a chance to speak at at a UN associate event this spring and and met your fire chief and met a number of people. Uh, but I I think that. This concept of us going deep and understanding what hope means. And, uh, you know, there are people working in this domain to create hopeful cities, which I think is so important of a concept. Hopeful communities, hopeful cities that will translate into hopeful countries. The challenge that exists now, I think, throughout the world and throughout our cities is that everyone is considered the other. And we've got to find some type of uh, broader community that brings us together so that we can reach our highest potentials as humans. And so I hope that we begin to find that. And I think the work that you're doing to, to have different guests on is one that is about hope and healing, and I applaud you. Well, and definitely we appreciate you um, joining in and taking the opportunity um, and and before I give you a chance to give our audience a recommendation for some you know cultural piece, book, music, movie, performance, or a piece of art that we might not um, be exposed to otherwise, I, I did want to mention one to you. And, and if I remember correctly, I think you and I had some online interaction after you spoke um, at uh, Johns Hopkins years ago. Um, and, and I'm a Baltimore guy, and the, you probably know the name Barksdale really rings out in Baltimore partially because <laughs> of The Wire – in which a fictionalized character was based on on the real Barksdale family, um, but I had the opportunity to meet um, one of you know really uh, uh, the pride of, of Baltimore in a lot of ways. Someone from that family, Dante Tater Barksdale, uh, yeah. who um, was uh, one of these you know he you know initially came up through a family that was very involved in in um, the drug trade in the city. Um, but later in life became really a fundamental part of a movement against violence, particularly in East Baltimore, where he was from. Um, and he became, you know, part of his work was in the community, part of it was in the hospital, part of this hospital-based violence intervention program that, that, that you were talking about. And he wrote a book, um, self-published, which was um, really excellent. And, and I, I really hope that some publishing house out there uh, takes the opportunity to, to – you know, work with his family to edit it and elevate it and publish it professionally. It's called Growing Up Barksdale. I think I mentioned it to you. I don't know if, if you had an opportunity to read it, but if not, I really um, encourage you. It has to be on your must-read list. Well, uh, that's fascinating to me because I have, uh, I have not read it, and um, you, are, you are bringing me to uh, the point that I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to get it. Is it available on Amazon? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll look for it and send you the link. And the, and the other part of that story that I didn't even mention um, is really the tragedy of it is that he was shot and killed doing his violence prevention work less than a block, less than a block from Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, and you know, I went to a vigil there in the Douglas Homes. Right, a lot of history there. Frederick Douglas, who worked in in Fells Point to earn his freedom, just down the street from Hopkins. Um, and I, you know, I was a little disappointed. There were some people like Daniel Webster, who you may know, who who made a point to be present. But I was really hoping that the institution of Hopkins would show up for him in a way which I, I'm not sure that they did. Yeah. So I knew that he was deceased, uh, and I'm sure he's a distant relative. So I remember you now. Um, I, I'm sure he's a distant relative because all the Barksdales across the country, black or white, are from one small county. Wow. And Virginia, Halifax, I'm sorry, South Boston and Halifax County in Virginia. So I'm sure we share DNA. Wow, so. fascinating. And, and so anything else, any other cultural reference you want to give us while we have you on the line? Well, I'm going to give you a, a, a new cultural reference, if I might. Uh, I'm a person who loves books, and I, I love uh, 
uh, giving books, and I'm working through this book now, and I don't have any benefits from this. But it's a book by uh, a man who I had a chance to interact with when we were both dreamers, uh, and now I, he is a Tony Award winner, and his name is Courtney B. Vance, and his his wife, Angela, was a classmate of mine and good friend of mine when I was at Yale. His wife is named Angela Bassett. And so uh, the book is The Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power. And so I think for some in the audience, they may think this is racially specific, but I think that it is important for anyone suffering from trauma, and that's what we're talking about today, to identify and name their pain and ultimately reclaim their power. And so that's the, the, you know, the cultural ad that I will uh, give to you today is to encourage people to look or listen uh, to this and reflect on it and empower them to reclaim their power. And the real reason to have power is to serve others. And remind us, that book was When We Were Both Dreamers? No, no. Um, no, the book is called The Invisible Ache. Invisible Ache. Black men identifying their pain and reclaiming their power. Excellent. And the editorial comment I made is that when we were dreamers, meaning when we were young boys, uh, he was uh, uh, he was at Harvard undergrad. I was at Yale, but you know I had met him through the small social net circles that exist, and so uh, he wanted to be an actor, <laughs> and I wanted to be a doctor, and you know that's. Uh, sometimes those things don't end the way you want, but sometimes they end the way uh, well beyond what you anticipate, and your role is to take what you've learned and to try to share it with others so that they can go further than you ever dreamed of. Excellent. Well, New York, uh, Dr. Anthony Barksdale, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> Dr. Edward Barksdale um, just conflated two very important historical characters. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and uh, and I uh, hope to uh, talk to you again soon. Very good. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Welcome back to the Trauma Code on WBAI in Brooklyn, New York. And I was just Dr. Edward Barksdale on the line talking about his anti-fragility initiative uh, in Cleveland. He's a very uh, prominent pediatric surgeon uh, who has turned his life in, into treating and preventing uh, the childhood um, victims and survivors of deadly violence in Cleveland. Um, and that music that we've been listening to, there was uh, to the, the, the first um, song that for the intro was Mdu Mokhtar, who is actually uh, West African um, uh, Tareg music that we've had before. The last two songs uh, were Palestinian music. Uh, the first one, Dami Palestini, which I believe is now, I'm being told that every uh, 
Palestinian wedding um, over and over again. Um, very popular song right now. And the second one uh, was uh, Dabor, um, shared to me by some Palestinian colleagues. Um, and, uh, you know, for the last little bit of the show, I did want to talk a little bit about what is going on in the Holy Land right now, um, because something extraordinary is happening uh, right now. Uh, for people who listen to the beginning of the show, we mentioned Dr. Hamam Allah, reportedly the only nephrologist in Gaza, uh, who was uh, featured on Democracy Now! last week, and they replayed the interview today, uh, in which he said last week that, uh, quote, uh, we are being exterminated. Uh, and he was then killed over the weekend along with all of his family. And to me, that really encapsulates the the horror of what's going on in the Holy Land um, right now. Uh, and, you know, people don't realize this, and we mentioned it on the show previously, but gauze, the gauze, the, the, the you know, the, that fundamental woven fabric that is essential to um, – wound care and dressings to this day is a derivative of the term Gaza. Um, and to me, that that's um, really, you know, a, a historic medical city who's uh, symbolizes that kind of woven fabric has been so isolated uh, and its health care under um, unprecedented attack. We talked about how it's been 11,000 people killed, uh, about half of them children. Um, but those numbers are old because of the siege on Gaza City, particularly on the healthcare system. There is no data from the last two days. For example, when Dr. Hamam Allah was killed, um, and you know, there's there's a lot could be said uh, about the series of of attacks on hospitals that first started, you know, were denied initially by the Israeli military, uh, and are now are just so blatant that people are being shot and killed on hospital grounds. Um, you know, there's no running water, electricity, oxygen tanks have been, um, you know, attacked, exploded with shelling. Um, and, you know, in spite of all of this, the medical community um, has really been disappointing, has not stood up, has not shown the solidarity with our colleagues um, that I think uh, people facing a genocide um, deserve. Um, there are even doctors who are supporting this violence. Famously, there was a letter coming out of Israel that at least 90 doctors signed with their names supporting attacks on healthcare infrastructure if they were believed to be linked in some way to Hamas and the military infrastructure, which of course has not been demonstrated. Um, but the tremendous level of violence on children, on healthcare workers, um, we mentioned that over 200 healthcare workers have been killed, um, doctors, nurses, therapists, um, dentists, students, you know, leaders in the field like nephrology and gastroenterology, but also those just entering the field um, are all being killed. Um, and in that context, um, there is a group uh, that's starting up right now, Physicians Against Genocide, um, proposing, among other things, a march into Gaza through the Rafah border um, with physicians and medical equipment, everything that um, they could possibly need to try to start treating the patients of this deadly violence. Um, but of course, in order to do so, we need to stop the genocide now. There needs to be an immediate ceasefire. The hostages need to be released, and the bodies need to be collected and documented, and uh, we need to be able to treat the patients, particularly trauma and burn patients, but also people with other medical problems, premature children, um, any kind of sick person is just being left to die right now because there is no healthcare infrastructure because it is under direct assault by the Israeli military. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, it's time for, for this to stop, for those supporting it to stop. Um, and I think we need to have the clarity and the moral courage to call the genocide in Gaza what it is and organize to end it now. And not only that, but everybody responsible for the atrocities, starting with Hamas on October uh, 7th, but also every single day since then, needs to be identified and held accountable uh, for what is going on in the Holy Land right now. So why don't we have a little music and then we'll have an outro and wrap up the show.
الأرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا أنا دمي فلسطيني Legacy of WBAI. Uh, you can support online at WBAI.org at the donate button or give to WBAI.org, the number two. And there's also the pledge line at 212-209-2950. Um, I can be reached um, also on social media as trauma code WBAI where you get yours, uh, but also email trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. Um, and as we wrap up the show, um, Reggie, uh, our, our sound uh, board engineer, also has a show on midnights, uh, Monday nights. Uh, anything you want to say about today's show, if anyone's up at midnight? Um, yeah, you asked me to play a song uh, uh, for tonight's show. So uh, I, I've been doing a series of programs for the past month focusing on not just Palestinian musicians, but Palestinian, but uh, musicians who support a free Palestine. And this week, I'm going to be focusing on a singer-songwriter from Algeria, Algiers, Algeria. Her name is uh, Suad uh, Masi. And um, there's the song that we're about to hear is called Let Me Be In Peace, and that's coming up. Good afternoon. 